0: Everybody and welcome to the MyoMinds podcast, I'm your host George and here at MyoMinds we want to demystify mental health and make sharing mainstream within the exercising and sporting community. I really hope you enjoy this episode. Just before we get started, I want to remind you that here on the My Minds podcast, we do often talk about eating disorders, body dysmorphia, exercise addiction, suicide, and other potentially triggering topics. Usually in the description below, I will write down what we talk about specifically in this episode. That being said, I do hope you enjoy this, but please do be careful. So, everyone listening, I'm sure you're already confused because... Normally, this podcast starts with a, hi, how are you? And then we get straight into it. But today is going to be ever so slightly different because today, when I first started the Mind Minds podcast, there were three or four people, I think it was four, that I said one day I will get these people on my podcast. And today is the first day that one of those people is going to be on my podcast. So I'm very excited um jason had no idea i was going to say this so i can already see him smirking <laughs> in embarrassment and um, so i'm sorry jason but as as we always start hi jason how are you hi. Uh, That's quite a privilege,
1: so thanks for sharing that i have cool. to live up to my expectations
0: now <laughs> you already have i'm already like my hands are shaking a little bit i've already started sweating a little bit i'm you know nervous it's just it's I was saying to my partner um this morning when i was telling her that i was going to be doing this pod with you that the 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 amount i think every podcast episode i've ever done i quote one of your studies so now it's like <laughs> i'm already thinking oh i'm going to say one and then you're going to be like actually george that wasn't right um or you know but it'll be fine and um, but yeah how are you how's your how's your day been what have you been up to well it's actually this morning for you uh
1: yeah it's been good i uh yeah Bright and early for me is the first thing that I've done after I woke up, so apologies if I'm a little bit uh, leary eyed but it's a great way to start off the week. And hmm. um, yeah, I, I had a nice weekend uh, with our daughter, um, and, and yeah, I'm ready to get off the week with this lovely conversation.
0: Ah, fantastic. God, we can start things off well. Um, so... Obviously, bringing you on the pod today is um you know i, I think everyone who listens know that I'm really interested in kind of muscle dysmorphia and muscularity oriented um issues and and different behaviors and you're you're the man for that um so you know we're we're here to talk about it um so I guess we'd start off with um quite simple questions what's what's how would you define muscle dysmorphia to start off with?
1: Yeah, I think that that's actually, while that may seem like a simple question, I actually think it's kind of a complicated question,
2: especially mm. if you
1: go into all the deep details in the DSM-5 or like sort of the Bible of, uh, of diagnos- diagnoses and mental health diagnoses. But to me, I think uh, muscle dysmorphia, which also has been colloquially known as like reverse anorexia or bigorexia, is when someone becomes... Preoccupied or obsessed with the pursuit of muscularity, um, and it does so in a way that impairs their quality of life or daily functioning. Um, And and so that's in general what I think of muscle dysmorphia. Sometimes uh, the reason why it's called reverse anorexia is that um, someone like no matter what their objective outward appearance is, they view themselves as puny or scrawny, um, even if they may be objectively Big and bulky, um, but uh, but you know, as with eating disorders, there are I think really important physical
0: health consequences
1: and mental health consequences, um, which is mm-hmm. why it's such a important condition
0: to get help for. Mm, exactly, yeah, and and yeah, I'm glad that you brought up the reverse anorexia because that was kind of what it was originally known as wasn't it when pope and and his colleague kind of worked worked on this and um, labeled that and then um, your colleague stuart murray who's also one of the the original to the record um (laughs) he obviously with with yourself have worked on these papers and talking about the idea of muscle dysmorphia being a form of eating disorder instead or at least it being this kind of the primary symptoms being around um eating disorder behavior and then kind of um more recently as time's on you've um, started talking about muscularity orientated disordered eating or mode for short and can you tell us a little bit about what that is to be specific yeah
1: Um, and I think that part of the reason why uh, the definition of muscle dysmorphia isn't actually so simple is that as you were mentioning um, traditionally or you know even officially muscle dysmorphia right now is a subtype of body dysmorphic disorder, and technically it's not an eating disorder, and technically um, you can't really have an eating disorder and muscle dysmorphia if you were very, um, if you like were true to the current definitions in the DSM. And so I think that um, in some ways this is problematic, and why we've done a little bit of research into our eating um, behaviors is that, you know, in order to achieve muscularity, there are many Eating related behaviors that people can engage in, um, and so it's a little bit hard to really separate the eating muscle, eating related muscle behaviors from like exercise or or anything else because they all kind of go in hand in hand. And so this idea of muscularity oriented disordered eating is just that people who have muscular muscle dysmorphia or who are trying to become really muscular, they're many eating habits that people may engage in. Um, so like, you know, eating uh, primarily a high protein diet that can include you wheat, know, but also protein supplements or shakes um, while restricting carbohydrates and fats. Um, you know, there are certainly bulking and cutting cycles that people can engage in. Um, and, you know, also debatable whether this is truly eating, but, you know, there are uh, wide range of dietary supplements or muscle building supplements that people can consume and eat um, also to enhance their muscularity. And so um, I think that to me, a lot of people that I take care of who have, who I would say have the general um, muscle dysmorphia symptoms um, do engage in a lot of eating behaviors to achieve that. And so I think that that's why um, it's a little bit hard to release say that people with muscle dysmorphia can't have eating disorders or can't have eating related behaviors because to me, they go hand in hand.
0: Mm. Yeah. And, and that kind of yeah immediately cuts people off from being able to actually get help for those behaviors as well. They can't. They have to choose one or the other at the moment. You either get help for your muscle dysmorphia or you get help for your disorder eating yeah. and that's a, that yeah, yeah. and, and you uh, you obviously know um that I've had my own experience with these muscularity oriented issues um we were in men's health together recently, and uh, which is really cool um but yeah th- so you know i've I've experienced this, and I think a lot of my friends who were in the gym would also engage in bulking and cutting and cheat meals and, you know, obsessively taking different supplements and, you know, having multiple protein shakes a day and, and, you know, all these kind of things that are so normalized and so okay. And then, and then also the question comes in, doesn't it, is when is that a problem? Because some people do it and it's fine. And some people, some people can do their bulk and cut and whatever, and they feel completely fine about it. Where do you think that line is when it becomes a problem?
1: Yeah, I think that that's a really good question. And actually, as a, I should mention that my training is really in pediatrics. Um, and so, uh, you know, in my practice, while I mostly focus on eating disorders and muscle dysmorphia, um, you know, I also see like general child and adolescence for, um, you know, primary care, um, or more like a GP type setting. And, um, and yeah, I think that it's a really difficult balance to, to make, especially as uh, like a primary care pediatrician, because, you know, overall, at least in America, most youth are physically inactive and sedentary. And so actually only like 16% of American youth like meet the physical activity guidelines um, that they're supposed to. And so actually a majority of people don't get enough physical activity, don't exercise enough. And on the one hand, you want to promote that for people who like are very sedentary. Um, but uh, to me the fine line is that when that exercise or physical activity or some of these other behaviors um, start to really um, become a preoccupation or obsession in a way that worsens someone's quality of life in a way that impairs their functioning so some young people who um, I take care of say that you know Going to the gym isn't something that like makes them feel better and like releases endorphins. It's something that they have to go to. And if they don't do that, then they start feeling guilty. Um, and also it kind of makes it such that they're not able to hang out with friends or family in a way that they normally would because they feel guilty that they're not in the gym or eating a certain way. And it also precludes them from having family meals or socializing with friends over, uh, you know, at like a restaurant because the restaurants or the foods that your parents are making, don't have enough protein or they have you know, too much of certain types of foods um so to me the, that fine line happens when it really is impairing your social functioning your um work or school work um and also it's starting to impair your quality of life in a way that makes your life feel worse than better
0: yeah um yeah exactly and i think the you know i think people will hear you say that and hear us discuss this and think Isn't that just dedication? Isn't that just people, you know, being able to risk, you know, put things on the line and and push through pain and push through adversity and, you know, miss out on their family because they're you know, they wanna be the best bodybuilder or they wanna be the best athlete or whatever it is. And it's something that I often get asked and I wonder if you do as well, but or at least people often assume that I don't like exercise or that I don't think like physical fitness is a good thing or that, you know, we shouldn't be talking about it at all. But actually I don't, I, I think, I think the what needs to happen is we need to add, it's not, it's not taking away the the narrative around exercise. It's just adding another sentence on, you know, we can still say that it's brilliant and we know the you know, scientific facts that exercise is great for multiple kind of health, um, outcomes but we all need to add on but also you know if it becomes this um you know compulsive and dependency um then then there's this then there can be an issue
1: yeah and i think that with the mental health aspect of it it is very personalized and individualized so um i mean i think it's also possible that for one person like who's a elite athlete who's trying to you know or like a professional athlete or like a college level athlete, or even a very dedicated high school athlete, like they may exercise for more than two hours a day. Um, but it they may do so in a way that still is like good for their mental health. Like they get a lot of camaraderie from the teamwork or the team practices. And like, you know, they're really oriented, like goal oriented towards whatever, Will it, winning a championship or, you know, whatever, whatever their goal may be. And it's, doesn't get to the point where it's really like detracting from their social life, but like, it's still feeling good for them. Whereas like there could be a same person who has the objectively does the same amount of exercise, but it makes them feel like terrible and cruddy. And like, if they're not doing it, then they feel guilty. And I, I think part of it is also this, the way that you perceive it and like your mental health, like your sort of the mental health associations with it. So somebody could objectively even do the same, amount of physical activity and for one person it could make them feel really cruddy and the other person it could make them feel really good. I think that's um also one of the sort of subtleties of this condition is that um it is quite personalized in that like one's own experience of you know engaging in the behaviors and
2: the exercise.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think yeah, it's a really important point that I think in order for us to, to have elite athletes and for us to to reach the, the kind of excellence that we've seen in athletics. People are going to have to kind of have this, like I think in sport, you always talk about obsession. People talk about obsession and they, it's glorified. It's given this kind of, you know, like other meaning to it. Obsession in, in, regular life is is a bad thing it's you know an addiction or whatever but in sporting circles it's actually pushed and positive um and it made me think of i don't know if you've read any of mike Trotts work and um, he just he did some stuff around exercise addiction you may even be in the paper that i'm about to say i feel like that's going to come up a few times today um but <laughs> he did a analysis of um exercise addiction i think it was in the uk um but um he found that in kind of university student in in gym goers um they there was about eight percent of them had the clinical cutoff for exercise addiction Um, but for then amateur athletes it was a bit lower so a similar population but they were about five percent um so i wonder if actually being involved in some kind of sports actually helps you be less like maybe it's that psychological dependence and Um, compulsion is reduced because suddenly it's got a purpose to it rather than um, maybe like a weight and shape concern or trying to affect your body or trying to earn respect in some other way.
1: Yeah Uh, maybe it's like a performance concern rather than appearance concern Um, Mm -hmm. but yeah that's that's really fascinating I wasn't aware of that study first so Mm thanks for educating me and I actually feel like you're selling yourself short I'm sure that I'm going to learn just as much as you are from this podcast because I think you're (laughs) right.
0: Um, up to date with all the literature as well. Oh now now you put me on the pedestal. Uh, now we're both <laughs> now we're both doomed. Um but thank you. Uh so in regards to the kind of muscularity stuff, so we spoke about muscle dysmorphia and um muscularity oriented disordered eating. Um roughly how many people are kind of experiencing that do we know?
1: Yeah, I think it's a great mystery to me because um, you know, it's that while at least in the U.S., I think you know, pediatricians and adolescent medicine providers are trained a bit to screen for eating disorders with more of the traditional weight loss behaviors like fasting, skipping meals, um, using diuretics or vomiting to lose weight. Um, it's relatively uh, under uh, like most providers do not screen for muscle enhancing behaviors or any kind of muscle dysmorphia symptoms. So I think the first Sort of the tragedy of all this is that we don't we just don't really have great estimates of muscle dysmorphia in the general population because nobody's asking none of our national surveys are asking um, most providers don't ask um, and so i think that's um, there's one thing to take from this is that i it is my guess is that it's quite common and um in order to really make it to the next step to get adequate funding research and treatment guidance like we actually have to have a better sense of the scope of the problem um, but uh, you know, Dab Mitchison's group in Australia, as you had mentioned earlier, um, did try to administer surveys to high school students in Australia um, to try to get at the general prevalence of muscle dysmorphia. And they found that about 2.2% of boys and 1.4% of girls um, in that setting would have met criteria for muscle dysmorphia, which is a pretty high number if you consider that that's a general population-based sample. Um, it's very high. Yes. And so, I do think that, uh, you know, short of the diagnosis of muscle dysmorphia, just from the, some of the United States-based, population-based studies that uh, we've participated in, I think about a third of teenage boys across the U.S. say that they're trying to get muscular bulk up or gain weight, um, and then about 22% of them are engaging in some sort of muscle-enhancing behavior to achieve that muscularity. So. Um, just as you're saying, like I think it's quite common actually for people to have muscle-building goals and to engage in some of these behaviors, and then you know only a subset of them will truly um, meet the diagnosis cri- diagnostic criteria for muscle dysmorphia. Um, but I think that first of all, it's probably more common than we think, and even if we're using the strict criteria of muscle dysmorphia as it is now, in the DSM-5, I think there are still many people who you know, would not meet the full diagnostic criteria, but who could still be struggling.
0: Mm, yeah, 100%. And I imagine you're the kind of using the, I always forget how you pronounce it, but the, the moet or the moe or, you know, your eating test. I don't know. How are you supposed to pronounce it? We can solve it now. You can tell me. Oh,
1: yeah. I think that we, we usually refer to it as the moe. Moe, um, yeah. Kind of like, I think there's like like an alcoholic beverage that is also called <laughs> the Moe. I don't know if you're aware of that, but I remember that that's, whenever we have papers that are accepted on that uh, little emoji that comes up, it's almost like the champagne black. But I actually think Moe might be a type of champagne. I'm not okay. sure.
0: Okay. Well, I, I wasn't aware, but now, when the first study I publish when I start my PhD that uses the Moe, I'm going to drink some Moe as a celebratory drink that's what i'm going to yeah, do no. in our <laughs> how would you do that as well
1: well we've said that but we all we're kind of an international team so we actually haven't been able to get
0: together and do it but maybe you can join us oh jason don't don't say that to me i'll cry um i would love to <laughs> um but yeah so that yeah, it's, it's really kind of interesting the um yeah we we just don't know the le the levels and and i think even like you say you know even if we did measure it we'd be still be missing people who who just don't fit the criteria that we currently have um and you, you kind of, uh, you alluded to this paper and to the, to the kind of next question. And it's funny that. Um, so obviously, I, I sent you a few of other kind of topics, like I normally do, that we're going to talk about. And actually, the the paper that we're referring to, the the one from Australia, the Mitchison one, is one that I was I mentioned. Um, and I didn't realize until you sent me the paper that you were one of the authors. And that's my exact fear came true that I was going to talk about the paper, and then suddenly realized you were you were on it. Um, but yeah it kind of this is a great um paper and something I thought was really interesting in it was um for one the fact that there was very similar levels of boys and girls in fact it wasn't statistically significant difference but also two the the way that they the or at least the the symptoms that they more commonly um reported were different and it, may, it suggested to me that maybe just the way that they're being shown or the way that they're presented in those, in the two kind of um, in boys and girls is different. Do you think that could be the case or, yeah?
1: Yeah, I mean, I do certainly think that um, there could be, there certainly could be gender differences in the presentation. And again, that's even like a little bit oversimplified because like person to person, obviously there can be like significant differences in the symptoms and the appearance concerns. Um, And well, I think the sort of very high level uh, body image sort of stereotypes or that like some sort of idealized masculine body type is, you know, muscular and big, while it's, whereas like there may be women and girls who are trying to achieve muscularity, but traditionally that's been more like a toned or lean muscularity. Um, but I think that there certainly are exceptions. There certainly are Um girls and women who are trying to get big and bulk up, and there certainly are guys who are not trying to do that, who are either trying to lose weight or get toned or lean. So I think that while there are are these, I think, masculine and feminine gender norms that do drive some of these concerns, I do think there are lots of exceptions. Um, And so, at least as a provider, it's really important to not make
0: assumptions about
1: people's particular goals and just to ask.
0: Yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. Um it makes you think of there's there's some researchers in Worcester Uni, um, Christian Edwards and um Professor Joza Molnar as well. Um I don't know if you're you're aware of them. Um, but they, they did some really cool um studies looking at um men and women with high drive for muscularity. So, um them and basically we're looking at how their muscularity fed into their life in different ways they did a life course analysis so they like asked them all about their lives and then like analyzed that Um it was really cool The the men um they basically showed that you know they, they tended to have this like father figure um who showed them what masculinity was and then something happened in their life that made them think that they weren't that and they needed to, to do something about it so then they took on these muscularity things and then and then use that as, a, as an attempt to like renegotiate where they felt they were as a man, as, you know, in a masculine way. Um, so for them, it was all about trying to get masculine capital, like trying to prove themselves, trying to get self worth by you know being bigger and stronger, but also by showing that they can work hard and they can endure pain. And like I used to, you know, for me, I used to feel upset after a leg day if I if you know, if I wasn't you know if I was still able to walk and if I was still you know, if I didn't you know nearly pass out or throw up or something like that you know i would feel bad about myself and i would i would get really upset because i felt you know i think i I wasn't consciously aware of it at the time but for me getting to that point proved something to myself and to the other people around me um but then the difference was with um, women, when they looked at women's experiences, um, was instead it tended to be, well for them, and I know this happens in men as well, but for the women it tended to be that they had um, an eating disorder of some form, like a more kind of classic eating disorder like anorexia, um, and then it formed into something else, like it kind of formed over time, normally after um, some kind of event that made them feel um, weak, or so like they they were kind of, um, I don't know, attacked, or kind of some kind of um, sexual um issue or something like that that happened to them um that made them feel kind of weaker or like unprotected and then they then they brought on um muscularity and they used it as a a term that i love um now and i try and use because it makes me sound really smart and they use it as ontological security and so they so they use it as a way for people who aren't aren't aware what that means and use it as a way to um kind of secure who they are as a person in in society so they they find who they are within muscle so they become the the woman who's going against the gender norm and is is a muscular woman um so it's quite interesting the slight differences there in that for men it's about trying to obtain something that they feel like they're supposed to have and for women it tended to be and obviously it's different between everyone but for women it tended to be trying to you cementing themselves as someone who goes against what Society told them they would be. So that's quite interesting in the differences.
1: Yeah, I think that is quite interesting. And yeah, thanks for sharing that. I hadn't heard of the, those nuances or that ontological security. So now I have a new uh, term that I can use to sound smart. And actually, the, in the U.S. based studies, um, one of the um, cohort studies that I have analyzed some of these muscle behaviors in is called the National Longitudinal Study of Adolescent to uh, Adult Health, and We did find that experiencing um, adverse childhood experiences, so either physical abuse or sexual abuse um, or neglect as a child, was a risk factor for future engagement in some of these muscle, um, muscularity-oriented, disordered eating behaviors. But we didn't actually look at differences by gender. So I think um, that would be something, now that I've heard about these studies, maybe we should see if there are differences between uh, the boys and the girls.
0: Yeah, then I mean, that would be amazing. I think I, I think I've read that study before of yours. It was like a predict. It was prediction, wasn't it? Like what predicted? Yeah, yeah. and wasn't one of them as well um, being or perceiving themselves as underweight or something? Yeah, I think yeah. perceiving
1: themselves as underweight actually maybe having a lower body mass index.
0: Um, and
1: then I think even team sports participation was a risk factor. Mm. Um, but yeah, I actually I'll I'll also disclose that it was very. The, part of the reason why I confirmed that the study, the Australian study you were referring to, was that interesting study, was because I, I think my fear on going on this podcast, since you know your stuff so well, is that you would actually cite a paper that I was on, but know more about it than I did. So <laughs> I
0: <laughs> well, I think that that's probably is a thing though, because I feel like for you, it's more, it's easier because you're so involved in it to kind of look over the nuances, whereas because I'm like a fan and I'm interested in doing it for my you know, for my work, I'm probably going to be delving into it, um, like really deep and you know, reading every word and being like, oh, why did he use that word? Whereas you might have just thrown it in for whatever reason. So there probably is a um risk of that, but I mean, you still did the still did the paper, so it's still cool. Um, okay. So so do you think do you think overall we still even with this study coming out in Australia? Because there still was a higher percentage in the, in the boys compared to the girls. Do you still think it is a higher risk factor for people who identify as men than, than people who identify as women? Uh,
1: you know, I think that that's sort of the traditional... Um, I think most people would think that this tends to affect boys and men more than girls and women. But um, I think that that also is sort of reflective of just the wording of, uh, you know, the diagnostic criteria and particularly, um, if, if the, uh, goal is more like really muscularity for like bulking up, I, I do think that that overall is more reflective of most boys and men's body ideals, whereas more of the tone muscularity is more for the women. But I will say that, um, you know, Mitch Cunningham in Australia has validated the Moe in in college women in australia um we've also i think um worked with people who validated it in brazil and china um in in female or women populations and so i do think that um there are definitely rising muscularity concerns in women i think it's all just like maybe eating disorders in boys and men are understudied i think that muscle dysmorphia in girls and women are understudied so um so i do think that it's definitely as you mentioned in that Mitchison study, even though the number was higher in boys than, than girls, it wasn't statistically significant. So I do think that uh, one, yeah, important finding, as you astutely mentioned, is that still is quite common in girls.
0: Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and um, you mentioned Cunningham. He is one of my um, favorite paper titles, the um, "Big Boys Don't Cry" paper. Um, which I also think is really interesting, kind of links to this really well. In the, uh, I'm massively nerding out right now. I don't know if anyone else can know anyone else is noticing, but I'm just nerding out. I love this. Um, but yeah, it was. It was I love that paper because it and it links really nicely here because when we were talking about the masculine capital, um, trying to gain masculinity in in men because um Cunningham showed in that paper the and you were probably in it as well. Um, the the there was a masculine discrepancy stress um links to muscle dysmorphia symptoms but it was it was through a path of emotional dysregulation so it was regulated by emotional dysregulation which i thought was so interesting because that basically describes that the the stress around masculinity then has this like gate there's like almost like a door or a gateway of how are you going to deal with this and I think typical masculine way of dealing with it is ignore it. That, you know, these rigid behavioral components, these like, you know, don't talk about it, ignore it, etc. And that causes this emotional dysregulation, which then leads to these muscle dysmorphia symptoms. So, you know, it, it raises the question of, of, I guess, the idea of you know masculinity playing such a huge part in this, I think. Um, and And I think as well, you know, also when you look at the kind of, fitness, social media in general, I think masculinity is is such a part of it. Everything's about working hard and pushing through pain and these kind of typically masculine traits. And I wonder if everyone who's just involved in that is just getting pushed down this road further of feeling like they're not masculine enough and then trying to be more masculine by not talking about it and then leading to these issues.
1: Yeah, I think for sure. And uh, it's funny that you mentioned the title because actually one of the things I think that we do at the end of these paper chases or like these collaborations, especially you know across countries, is um, trying to come up with a catchy title. And so we uh, usually at the end of these projects, we, we spend like a lot of time actually trying to think of a way that um, you know to make it the most appealing to a broad audience. And so it's nice that you mentioned that because I think um, it it makes a difference. Like people will read you know, papers more if it has a catchy title. So, um, but yeah, actually that, that, what you had just mentioned made me think actually over this weekend, I was, um, following, I guess, uh, I don't remember which cup it was called, but, you know, like Roger Federer had his last like sort of tennis, um, tournaments of his career. And there were some really, um, moving images of, um, him and like some of his teammates, you know, like, crying, getting very, like, vulnerable, like, holding hands, you know, after yeah. the last match, and, um, you know, there's people sort of commenting that, you know, if people saw more of this from, you know, elite athletes, whatever, maybe it could start to change some of these gender norms.
0: Yeah, 100%. I, I know the picture of him, uh, at least I I saw the same picture, I think, of him holding hands with Nadal, and they're both crying, and, yeah, it's like a, a perfect example, because especially, you know, um Nadal is such a, like, famously, you know, he's, he's kind of, he's always pushed as this, like, aggressive, very muscular, like, you know, manly figure, I suppose, in tennis. So to see him, you know, showing vulnerability and, uh, yeah, that's a great way. And it brings, it makes me think of, um, I don't know if you've heard of Paddy the Baddy, the UFC fighter who's from England. Have you heard of him?
1: I've heard of him, but I, tell me more.
0: Okay. well, he did he did a fight recently um, and after his fight, he opened up about the fact that one of his best friends five days before the weigh in or before the fight um, committed suicide. Um, And he found out just before the weigh in and obviously horrible thing. And then after he, he won his fight, I think he choked someone out. Like you know, very obviously, like masculine bay <laughs> like this you know this yeah. the other think you can be more like stereotypically macho than a fighter, um, and then he and then he you know came up and he was crying his eyes out talking about his friend who's lost, and saying how you know men need to talk about their mental health, and like it's not brave to do it to 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 not speak, it's braver to say and to talk about it, and you know stuff like that's gonna. I think, I think in fact, in in the UK, there was something like a two hundred percent increase in men's mental health, like refer or like um, I can't remember the, the term, but you know admissions or whatever to men's mental health groups in the UK just after that talk, which is I you know, know shows how strong it is.
1: Yeah, yeah, and I think that also the fact that federal and Nadal were really rivals for most of their careers, and, and then to like really and i think that's a, most of the narrative probably for their careers are like it was about the rivalry and how they like were really great competitors and then to sort of end with this more you know vulnerable um image or you know media i think was was very nice and yeah i i it, i think it's just so important how um you know aside from what we do in like medicine or as medical providers how um getting the narrative out to just through the like popular media and just uh, you know the general populations, which is why I think it's so great to see all of your work and um, you know thank you for sharing your story in the news and Men's Health. I actually have to say that um, I don't because I know I that really, you were featured in the UK Men's Health, and I don't know if mm. the one that just came out is. But I have to say that actually I. Um, <laughs> Part of what I did this weekend with our is we went to the bookstore. To actually, picked up a hard copy of it, so I, I have the print version.
0: Oh, I, uh, I is, need to yeah. get I need to get one because they don't. Ha- I don't know how to get the US one in in uh, the UK. Uh, okay, I'll I'll get you one and I'll send it. Oh, please, yes, please, because I've been I've actually been needing someone to to help me with that because I don't know where to get it. Because um, the, the one I was the one I was in in the UK originally was just online, although I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, um, but <laughs> the editor of the UK one did tell me that I'm going to be in the UK one next month. But I don't know if that's a magazine or not. So I might be in the, I don't know. But I would really appreciate if you could help me get one because I do, I do definitely yeah. want to get one. Yeah, it's a very
1: nice feature. And I think it's so fascinating to me because, um, you know, when we were talking with the writer of that article, part of it was what they were mentioning was. You know, men's health in particular, um, focusing on this issue because to some extent they sort of perpetuate a lot of this <laughs> muscularity content. And so I think actually the whole, or there are several other articles in this issue that talk about male body image and like perhaps, yeah, just as you're saying, it's kind of like a double edged sword on the one, you know, it's men's health. So like, yeah, the general wants to promote fitness, but if you just look at, who typically is featured on their cover and the types of, um, yeah, body, you know, in some ways they perpetuate this and body idea on this bigger, bulkier stuff, um, and so you had mentioned that in some ways it's like a reckoning for them to try to, like, make amends for the trauma that they've caused, it. <laughs> so it was kind of interesting.
0: Yeah, but that's, that's really great, but it is funny, like, the, the dichotomy of it, because I remember they did, the UK one did a post about me um, on their Instagram, and then I remember I was like, oh, that's really cool, and then their next post was, like, a man who was obviously on steroids, like, doing dumbbell curls and being like, you know, you've got to do this workout to get the biggest arms on the beach. I'm, I'm like, paraphrasing, but, you know, it's just funny how, you know, literally, like, the next day, they were just back to doing the same thing. But, I, you know, I... I I get it to a point. As much if I'm looking at it from like a businessman perspective, like that stuff is selling and that stuff works to get their numbers up. So it's just how, yeah, how can we find a good balance? So maybe even just having articles like the one, the, these ones is just a way, um, a way to do that. But it makes it. Sorry, I just also wanted to add because you you spoke about the title um, and trying to draw people in. Um, one of my um to be. Supervisors always jokes with me about the fact that I will be one of the most cited people in the world purely because of my last name, um, <laughs> because every every undergrad student will want to put my cock et al in their paper, um, so I feel like that's going to happen.
1: Yeah, I, I didn't think about that, but yeah, I think that that would be very um, citable. So <laughs> I've always You're starting off ahead.
0: And this is now getting crude so I apologize but I've always said if um one day I will find someone with the last name Balls and then I will get them to publish a paper with me based on, and the paper will be about sexual innu- innuendos so it'll be like My Cock and Balls 2023 and the paper will be all about sexual innuendo names um but yeah where
1: you can send that but I don't know if you've heard of the BMJ Christmas issue but Um, the British medical journal every christmas has sort of a it's almost like a a parody issue where they put stuff like that so that's where
0: you should send it i'm sure they'll publish it there we go i know yeah so one like i feel like when i'm a um lecturer it'll be some lucky undergrad will join in and i'll be like you're getting a paper in your first week of university (laughs) congrats (laughs) um anyway we've Yeah, we've gone off track here big time. Um, I did really want to talk about as well uh, the PRIDE studies that you've brought out. Um, We spoke a bit about the the kind of um, differences in in genders and um, I know that you've also brought out some um, studies around the LGBTQ plus communities. What kind of numbers have you seen in that and how does it kind of tend to differ in those populations?
1: Yeah, Um, so I think First of all, the goal of trying to study muscle dysmorphia in the PRIDE study, which is a U.S.-based cohort of adults uh, who are sexual and gender minorities, so, uh, yeah, people who are LGBTQ+. Um, And we actually, I think, surveyed a little over 4,000 people who are sexual minorities and gender minorities in the U.S. Um, And so, you know, part of that was studying eating disorders, and then part of it, we um, Administered the Muffled Dysmorphic Disorder Inventory, or the MDDI, which actually hadn't been validated in um, sexual or gender minority populations. So we um, did validate it and, you know, publish some of the first norms in these understudied populations. Um, and I think overall, it did seem like the gender norms um, sort of tracked with people's um, like affirmed gender gender identity rather than their sex assigned at birth. So, for instance. Transgender men, like who would have been female sex assigned at birth, um, you know, had much higher uh, MDDI scores, particularly like the drive for size, than transgender women, um, you know, who would have been male assigned sex at birth. Um, so it did seem like overall that yeah the transgender men had higher muscle dysmorphia symptoms than the transgender women and then actually people who were non-binary were somewhere in between so it actually tracked quite nicely with the perceived sort of gender norms in our society mm. um and but i think it also made us realize that like muscle dysmorphia is quite underrecognized in these populations Um, Because we also asked people, I think, if they had been ever diagnosed with muscle dysmorphia and almost no one had in this population. So even though, you know, many of them had high sort of MDPI scores. So I think that it's also just a reminder that we're not asking. So, you know, many of these people who probably, who have significant muscularity concerns and muscle dysmorphia symptoms, like, have never been identified as such by any medical provider.
0: Yeah, and I, and I I always say this, and it's still yet to happen. I don't think I'm I'm yet to meet anyone who has an official diagnosis with muscle dysmorphia. Um, you know, I I've, I I've, I've, I'm deeply ingrained in this world, but I you know I've ne- no one's ever I've never spoke to anyone who's got an actual diagnosis. I know lots of people who you know talk about it and they have the experience with it, but no one's ever you know had that you know yeah, proper experience. And I wonder if that is again because of the difficulties, because they often have some kind of eating behavior issues as well so they just kind of they've been given the eating disorder diagnosis or gone down that path instead
1: yeah and i do think that because it's such a under-recognized diagnosis and because it's technically not an eating disorder um i will say that there are very few places that you can get specifically muscle dysmorphia treatment and probably the next best thing is sort of an eating disorder provider who like is trained in either therapy or medical management. So. yeah, just from a logistical standpoint, at least in the US, um, because we don't have like the NHS, like you have, you know, for your health insurance to cover therapy or any kind of coverage, you have to have, you know, an appropriate diagnosis. And I feel like, um, most providers who are caring for this population are probably people who are trained more in eating disorders, who just happen to also cover muscle dysmorphia. Whereas I don't, yeah, I don't know of anyone who really specifically only treats muscle
0: dysmorphia. Yeah, and that's something actually. I do. I've done um, a talk for a, one of the networks for the NHS here recently about men's um, male eating disorders, and I spoke about the muscularity stuff as like my kind of um, kind of a big push on it, just to kind of yeah try and help people be aware of it. Um, and I've got another one coming up soon that I'm going to be doing the same. And um, but also just to kind of go back to the the your the pride studies and the LGBTQ plus community. Um, it's really interesting, like you said, that the it kind of still followed that gender norms. And it, again, it makes me think of the, yeah, kind of the the role that masculinity or kind of the pressures to around masculinity play in this. And it makes me, you know, I think one thing that I'm, I think needs to kind of happen is, the, you know, obviously, typically masculinity has been for men and femininity has been for, for women. And uh, that's why they were called that. But I think a big part of what we need to be doing is, trying to help everyone understand that just because it's called mask and femme doesn't mean that they apply to those two you know anyone can have any mix of those things and i feel like that could help so obviously i'm saying that like it'd be easy we could just stop stop thinking that way but you know i think that's a big part of this is is letting people you know it doesn't matter what gender you are you can kind of present in any way you like and that's you know there is no expectation but also i think you know i think they do you know they kind of masculine norms play a role in in certain situations and feminine norms play a role in certain situations and maybe the answer is to be like it's okay to aspire for them if you wish um but you don't need to there's no pressure you don't you you don't have to um what do you think about that
1: yeah i mean i do think that gender norms are so ingrained in our society and there's actually a lance series that i participated in a couple of years ago that not just looked at eating disorders, although our contribution was a case study in eating disorders, but looked actually at how gender norms affect all kinds of health outcomes like across the board, like physical health outcomes, like cardiovascular disease, all types of stuff. Um And yeah, it's actually quite, it was quite astonishing to me how some of these norms really actually do have downstream effects to all kinds of health outcomes. Um, uh, and so, yeah, I do think that, yeah. I mean, I think that we do have these binary sort of general definitions, and I think that part of what people who, you know, particularly who, like, identify as non-binary or somewhere like what we, like, called in the Pride studies more gender expansive, you're not, like, exclusively like on one side or the other, but somewhere in between. Um, I think that that in some ways reflects, like, you know, that, that for not, not for everyone, it's not all binary, and there might be people, people who have some degrees of masculinity, some degrees of femininity in certain ways, and that's like okay. But I think that part of why this particularly affects, um, you know, gender minority populations is that, um, yeah, they're kind of going against the grain of most of you know what the default in society is, and so that presents a lot of challenges and stigma um, and
0: mental health um,
1: uh, repercussions.
2: Mm.
0: Yeah. I, I, yeah. I often. I think. I think. I remember. I think it was a podcast with Scott Griffiths, and he mentioned some case studies that he did with transgender men. But I was yet to find. I couldn't. I could never find them online. But I'm pretty sure he spoke about the fact that, um, for some of these transgender men, they spoke about feeling like they had to prove their masculinity more than cisgendered men because they transitioned they have to now like be even more masculine um and again you know i think that likely leads to these you know being big and muscular like you said they they have this kind of high drive to to muscle um that might be a way of of trying to do that to some degree yeah and i think just in uh yeah in,
1: in terms of like well so this is also like a problematic diagnosis but i think in order to, at least in the U.S., in order to get like access to hormonal therapy and stuff like that, to sort of for transgender people to get gender affirming care, I think the official diagnosis is called gender dysphoria. Um, and so it's actually interesting to me that um, just the very, very high overlap with eating disorders and gender dysphoria. Just that, like, if you if you are born into a body that doesn't feel right to you and that particularly like is sort of the opposite of what these like societal gender norms um are like telling or the pressures that like all the space um, i just <laughs> to me it makes like a whole lot of sense that this is the population that has like almost the most um the most pressures for certain appearance because they like they're basically stuck in a body that is the opposite sort of gender normative Appearance than what they want. And so yeah, I think that there is some sort of compensation for many people that they have to like go to the other extreme um, And so I've definitely seen yeah, we have a large proportion of transgender patients in our eating disorder kind of Program, which includes people with muscle dysmorphia for that reason
0: mm, Yeah, it's, just, it's really interesting and so definitely something that needs more kind of research and more yeah, understand i feel like we're kind of scratching the surface with it but it's yeah very cool um so regarding these kind of muscularity oriented behaviors and, and muscle dysmorphia the the disordered eating as well as the exercise around that as well Um, how serious are these so what what can like happen to the people who were you are going through this
1: um i think that they are quite serious and i think just like eating disorders they can have very significant mental health consequences as well as physical health consequences and um, so as a medical provider actually I can talk a little bit more about the physical health consequences I think we've touched a little bit on some of the mental health consequences Um, you know just preoccupation obsession that really can worsen your quality of life and um, but on the physical side uh, you know just Depending on it also depends, I guess, a little bit on the specific behaviors that people are engaging in, whether it's excessive exercise or dietary restriction or eating certain types of foods and not others. I think, first of all, you know, there are certain drugs or muscle-building supplements or substances that just any use themselves like have serious health consequences. Like anabolic steroids can have really important like liver, or heart, kidney effects. Um, in addition to mental health effects, um, which is why they're illegal in the U.S. and most countries, um, and you know many other supplements uh, for muscle building, even um, if they're not marketed as such. Um, at least in the U.S., there's no regulation for them, and so there's just all types of mixtures and concoctions, and many of them are tainted with drugs that shouldn't be there, including steroids um, that can also put people at at risk. Um, and then aside from that. Uh, muscle dysmorphia and sort of if you're excessively exercising, but then not getting enough nutrition, um, you can have these, you know, important energy imbalances. Um, similarly, if you were, you know, restricting your food intake, you know, you can get sort of a starvation state um, where you're, would be considered malnourished and you're basically just not taking in enough energy to sustain your, um, your vital organ functioning, which is why all of your organ systems can shut down, you know, your heart, brain, um, liver, kidneys, everything. Um and similarly muscle dysmorphia, for those who are excessively exercising, um, but then not getting enough nutrition in, even I think one of the other reasons why this may be missed is that, you know, objectively, a young person who's excessively exercising may be eating the same amount as like another teenager or kid. But if they're then going to the gym for five plus hours a day, then they still can have these big energy imbalances and still have um, you know the resultant effects to your end organs like your heart and liver and lungs, and and so I think that that's another reason why it's often missed. Is people say, well, my kid is still eating like 2,000 calories or whatever. Well, if they're like burning you know 5,000 calories a day, and they're still getting these energy deficits. And so I think that um, one other uh, condition that I that is somewhat related to this is. You know, there's something called, like, relative energy deficiency in sport. It used to be called the female athlete triad. But because of the recognition that it doesn't just affect females, it's now called the red acid or relative energy deficiency in sport. That's even in the absence of, like, the psychological sequelae of muscle dysmorphia. Just basically, if you're an athlete and you have these big energy deficiencies because you're exercising too much, like, regardless of the mental health component, you can still get this energy deficiency and all the... Physical consequences of basically being in a starvation state for your body because you're putting out too much exercise and not getting in enough nutrition.
0: Yeah, and I, red red S is something I'm really interested in. I used to um, teach about it for a charity here in the UK called First Steps Ed. Um, and one thing I think is really interesting with with red S is that like you kind of you you alluded to it yourself in the sense that. I think often we assume that people who have red S are kind of restricting their eating. But some, sometimes they're, they're, it can be like by accident. So like you say, they're they're eating the same amount that other people eat. Or even I think sometimes you'll get an athlete who is you know, burning a lot of energy and they, they see online that, um, you know they're burning a lot of energy, but they're eating lots of like pizza and high-calorie dense foods um, to to fill that. And then they see online some fitness influencers say, "Oh, pizza's bad for you. Instead, you should have rice cakes and peanut butter, or I don't, I don't know, you know, something something less calorie dense." Um, so they start eating rice cakes, and they they still eat to the point where they're really full, the same way they would with their pizza. So they think, oh, I'm stuffed. Like, you know, I'm definitely not restricting, but they're not getting anywhere near as many as much energy as they would before. So suddenly they get into this red S, and they're thinking, but I'm stuffed. Yeah, you know, I'm eating so much food. Um, but but it's just the the types of food that they're told are bad for them are actually you know the foods they need because they're burning so much energy. And so that's that's a really interesting kind of thing as well as you, you even if you're making what you think is a is a quote unquote healthy choice, it could actually be really dangerous.
1: Yeah. I think that's also such an important um area for like coaches, counselors, school teachers, uh, parents to really be aware about and uh, counsel you
0: Definitely, definitely. Um I also wanted to ask you about, because I, I 100% misquoted one of your studies on a podcast I did a while ago, um, and uh, <laughs> and I wanted to, like, figure out what it actually was. There was a study you did where you looked at, I think it was actually just um, men with eating disorders, but you were something about, like, a zinc deficiency or a zinc uh, something something to do with that. Can you, if you know the study off the top of your head, sorry to put you on the spot, um, can you tell me a little bit about that, what the difference was?
1: Sure. Um, so, actually, in the last couple of years, um, my focus, as I mentioned, like, even though I've, I've worked really collaboratively with, like, really some of the leaders in the muscle dysmorphia field, um, you know, most of them are mental health providers or psychologists in training. And um, my background is really more medical. Um, and so one of the goals um, that I have had specifically is to try to really um, conduct medical studies of medical complications of eating disorders and muscle dysmorphia and particularly because there are just huge gaps in the medical guidelines and like how we take care for um, some of these people, young people um, with eating disorders and muscle dysmorphia um, from a medical standpoint. And so we actually um, did a retrospective chart review. So we looked at all the patients who've been hospitalized at our hospital um, at the University of California, San Francisco over the last decade, um, and then tried to look at different medical complications. And so, um, yeah, so we've looked at zinc deficiency, anemia, vitamin D, um, uh, and we're looking at uh, cholesterol right now. Um, and then we're looking at refeeding syndrome next. So, um, yeah, a lot of sort of these medical consequences. And so uh, the study that I think you're referring to, we looked at zinc deficiency and anemia, um, and particularly no studies prior to this. Like while it's known that you know like eating disorders, malnutrition can lead to zinc deficiency and anemia, to our knowledge, no study had actually looked at it specifically in boys and men, or like disaggregated it by by sex or gender, um, and like most of the previous studies had been really predominantly in female samples. Um, And so, in terms of zinc deficiency, we found that about 24% of the males who had been hospitalized for eating disorders had zinc deficiency, and that was just as severe as um, in females. So actually, it was 24% in females and 24% in males, so it was actually equivalent. But I guess even though there was not a difference, I think another way of framing that is that you know boys and men had just as severe zinc deficiency as girls and women, so it's important to not overlook that in those populations. Um, but what yeah. was actually more interesting to us is that we found that actually half of the boys and men um, had anemia, so that's sort of a low red blood cell count, um, and that was actually higher than the percentage of girls who were anemic. Um, 18% of girls who had been hospitalized for eating disorders were anemic. So um, I think it also just goes to show that in some ways, medical consequences can be as severe as in uh, in boys than in girls. In some ways, they can even be more um, significant.
0: Yeah, and then also, you know, the way that um, we can maybe talk about this a little bit as we go on as well, but um, the way that men and boys are, are kind of treated in, in service as well is, is kind of missing. And you said that in the guidelines, there's kind of, there's not too much information about it. And I know that there's one of your studies where they, you kind of found that, the I think it was the refeeding the the calories given to men and women were the same in each sort of services despite the men requiring higher levels is that right?
1: Yeah, so from the same database we looked at um, yeah the, the nutritional protocols in our hospital and in many hospitals across the U.S. and I don't know perhaps in the U.K. Um, where they're not, really not sex or gender specific so all of our patients who are admitted are started at like 2,000 calories and then they're increased um, and part of that is um, you know, to look out for refeeding syndrome. Um, but we uh, yeah, we basically found that because growing teenage boys generally have a greater energy requirements than growing teenage girls, um, even because they're started at the same amount, it takes longer for the boys to get to sort of what they need to get to ultimately, um, and then that leads to longer hospital stays. So the boys over the past ten years who hospitalized at UCSF has to stay in the hospital on average a few more
0: days than girls. Yeah so obviously that's a big impact for, for the boys I ended up having to stay in the hospital for longer um, Yeah, more time away from school and, and friends. and Larger costs
1: the healthcare system
2: and mm. um, yeah
1: I mean, cause this is like an inpatient thing so yeah it's quite expensive and I, I do think that we could individualize care a, a little bit more by yeah, maybe starting boys at a higher amount or Increasing them, back if it's appropriate.
0: Yeah, especially in America, like like you say, because I, I was, you know, again, kind of privileged position of being in the UK and having the NHS, and even consider the the fact that you've got to spend for those two days as well. Um, yeah, has a big impact on on the families as well, I imagine. Um, so we've we've already kind of discussed this um, a little bit, but I'm wondering if there's any other kind of things that you you um, think is causing um, these muscle muscularity oriented issues, but like, what, what do you think it is? that's Why people develop these things?
1: Yeah, um, I think that you know, there are For every person it's different, but traditionally the thought has been that you know, it can there can be pressures from peers from family and from the media And I think that um, the traditional media like you know movies television videos Have been on people's mind or your magazines like men health, you know, have been on people's minds and are you know, can portray increasingly muscular or masculine body ideals, um, and then I think that also in the past decade or so, you know, social media has had a big impact as well, and I think one of the unique features of social media compared to television and movies is that, um, you know, television and movies, for the most part, young boys and men are sort of in read-only mode, where you're consuming, you're seeing these Hollywood stars or these celebrities doing stuff, but there's not really a for most people, it's not, there's not an opportunity for you to be featured on, you know, on a feature film um, that's going to be widely broadcast. But in social media, anyone can become an influencer. Uh, and just, you know, if you have the right appearance or, um, you know, post things in a certain way. And so I do think that one of the new sort of features and pressures of social media is that people, um, you know, are now able to produce their own content and gain followers by putting their own bodies on this plan. So I think that that has been a sort of new pressure for young people.
0: And it's a new way of valuing your body, isn't it? The amount of likes you get and shares you get. Suddenly, you've got an actual physical score of, you know, and obviously it doesn't it isn't a direct analysis of their physique, but you know, I could I definitely for me, if I put up a picture, I used to post it every day on Instagram, and it would always be some kind of picture of me with my top off or whatever. And I told myself that it was because I was recording what I was doing and stuff, but really, you know, I could you know, now I'm more consciously aware of it. When I got less likes, I felt sad that day. And when I got more likes, I felt better that day. So I know that that's what I was doing. It was basically a test for myself. It was a little test of like, oh, how good should I feel about myself today? Let's put this picture up. How many likes did I get? Okay, I can feel good about myself today. Um, and again, yeah, so it's, you know, and it's that's easy for that to become dependent and to become something you depend on, especially when you get the highs of it, when you do get a post that gets a lot of likes or someone says something nice about you. And then that, you know, that that kind of breeds in um, the issue with you know, something I talk about um, a lot is the fact that I think people often assume that compliments about someone's body is fine because it's a compliment and it's nice. But actually, sometimes you're setting someone up to then feel bad about themselves and they're not getting compliments. So it's trying to weigh up how you how you do that. But, yeah, it definitely, definitely causes some issues.
1: Yeah. And I think that also the thing about social media is that there are like algorithms that also will uh, like if you are looking at content or consuming or posting content that has a certain theme to it then it'll tend to send back to you that stuff people can get really stuck in these uh, very niche vortexes of you know muscularity content or certain types of other influencers or people who like have exactly the exact same interests as yourself and so you can also have sort of a distorted view of reality
0: Yeah, 100%, and it reminds me of, um, there's a paper by someone called, I think her name's Hannah Stoyle, I always forget what her last name is, but um, she looked at um, eating disorder behaviours in athletes, and one of the things that they spoke about, you know the the eating disorder triite model, I think it's called, um, for people who don't know, it's basically like, a, it's, there's three kind of, the model describes how people get eating disorders, and there's three kind of things that plug into it, um, and one of those things is societal pressures. And in this study, they spoke to athletes about disordered eating symptoms. And what they concluded was that with it, with athletes, and um, what tends to happen is because they create such an in-group, out-group mentality of the people who are like me are people I hang around with. And you start to do these extreme behaviors and your friends from school tell you that that's weird or you need to you know, relax more. So then you start to ignore those friends and you become friends with a smaller group then suddenly the the threshold of what's normal gets higher so then you you do those higher thresholds and the people who don't go to there they say, oh, that's weird. You shouldn't be doing that much. Then you get rid of them, and your group gets smaller. The threshold gets higher, and eventually, you end up with this tiny little social circle where the norms are absurdly high, and there's so there's so many things going there's so many things getting pushed into you. And I think it's the same within the fitness community and within these people with muscularity-oriented issues. The social media play the, the algorithms in social media play such a role in that because everyone who gets forced onto you, everyone you're looking at has higher and higher norms and this this like yeah threshold becomes to the point where it's ridiculous where you have to do x amount of weight x amount of sets x amount of um, exercises each session otherwise you're not not as good you know you've got to the point where you know, I was doing ridiculous amounts of sessions a week, and if I halved it, I was still doing more than you know some some of my friends. But you know, to me, if I if I dropped one session, it was I was over. You know, my life was I was it was you know terrible. I was weak. I was useless. I was whatever. Um, and I think this is something really common. But I I do think this is something that needs to be looked into because um, ever since that study came out looking at that, I don't think I've seen anything since. But that kind of yeah, and I think social media probably plays a role in it, like you just mentioned then with those algorithms.
1: Yeah, I think that um, that's, yeah, that's another very interesting study. And yeah, I think that's really illustrative of how this can play out for many people. Um, but yeah, I do think that the algorithms, which I don't, entirely, I don't think anybody entirely understands, um, do really sort people's social circles and views on you know, certain things and in a way that really gets them to the extremes.
0: Fantastic. Um, so how or kind of what kind of help do you think people can access? I know we spoke about previously there's not really anything for muscle dysmorphia. So would it just be in disorder services or yeah, what what do you think there is?
1: Um, well, I think first of all, we need to do a better job at screening um, and like assessing for these things. I don't actually know of any validated screening tool for muscle dysmorphia in the general population or for like primary care for like schools to use. So I do think that that would be a good thing to develop. Um, Note to you and myself and anyone else interested in that, I think it would be an important, like, you know, just a couple of questions that could really get to um, the screening for some of these symptoms. Um, And then also, as we briefly touched on, I I do think that like more education for like coaches, teachers, school counselors, because I think that people who are on the front lines, you know, like at schools, like are likely the people who are going to, potentially see some of these warning signs first. Um, and then I, I also do think that um, even though it's good that we have this diagnosis of muscle dysmorphia, it, as I mentioned, I, I think the current conception of it doesn't really capture a lot of the experience of many people who really do have muscularity concerns. Of. And so I do think that like further development of like the formal diagnosis in a way that can get people you know, a diagnosis and therefore access to medical and mental health um, and nutrition care that they need, um, I think is super important, especially in contexts like the US where like you don't have a diagnosis, you won't get care for it because insurance won't cover it.
0: Yeah, amazing, amazing. Um, yeah, I do, I do think that, yeah, currently people are just kind of a bit stuck. Um, and that's kind of what I'm wanting to do with my research to some degree is try and find, ways of or at least trying to highlight in the UK the reasons why they're stuck um, and I want to look at kind of both sides of the story so on the one hand what can the services do themselves to outreach to them so maybe that is like developing scales and, and that kind of thing and how can we do that but then on the other hand I want to look at the people who are experiencing it and, and not seeking help Um all the people who do seek help and, and kind of what the barriers are for them and trying to figure that out but some, something I'm really interested in is that idea of um why these people don't seek help. Um but yeah, something something I'm hopefully going to be looking into. Uh, but I'm I'm getting conscious of time because I know I've already captured for over an hour now. Um so we're going to move in. I don't know if you've ever listened to one of the podcasts, so this might be about to freak you out because I'm gonna play the jingle for the devil's advocate. So here we go. It's the Devil's Advocate. <laughs> How terrible is that? It is amazing. (laughs) Well, I don't, I don't, I didn't used to do it live, but I now like doing it live because I think it's funny to listen to it with another person (laughs) and see their (laughs) reaction. (laughs) I literally remember recording that. I was just like in my bed with holding my mic and just like practicing it over and over again. But anyway, this is the devil's advocate. So I need to go into the the mind of the, the devil's advocate so jason a lot of these people are just trying to build muscle um, be the best they can be and get healthier aren't you just labeling muscle building behaviors as bad and therefore discouraging healthy choices
1: yeah i think that that's a really important um, observation and as i mentioned earlier i do think that for many people Um, You know, exercise is recommended. Physical activity is recommended, um, and actually, all of our current public health and clinical guidelines say that, especially for young people. And actually, a majority of young people don't get enough exercise. And so, I think that you know, like 60 minutes of physical activity a a day is is a great goal and should be aspired to. Um, However, um, at the point where it is making people, it's not benefiting their health, but it's actually making them feel worse about their health their mental health that are getting preoccupied or obsessed with um, certain muscle-building behaviors, um, you know, where it's impairing their quality of life, uh, where it's impairing their social functioning, their daily functioning with work or school. Um, I think that those are times when, uh, you know, these supposedly healthy behaviors actually can work to um, worsen people's health, both physically and mentally. And so I do think it's a slippery slope. I think there is a fine line, but at the point that some of those kind of red flags or warning signs are happening for people, I do think that that's time to start talking to people and to have considering getting some professional
0: help. Fantastic answer. Thank you. So, Jason, we're now moving on to the final three. Um, for people who are first-time listeners, every one of my guests, I ask them a final three questions. Well, they're not questions. They're just statements that I ask you to say. And so the first one is, name a person that inspires you.
1: Yeah, I have to say that <clears throat> there are many people who inspire me, but one off the top of my head that I have to give the most credit to is my mum. Um, she was one of eight children growing up in Hong Kong, and she never actually had the opportunity to go to college uh, when growing up. Um, so actually, when I finished high school, um, and she immigrated to the U.S., um, when I finished high school, uh, she actually resumed her studies that she was never able to do, and she finished her bachelor's, master's, and doctorate degrees. Actually, I think she got her doctorate in her 60s, um, and so she really inspired me to. Persevere, follow your
0: dreams and
1: just work hard in
0: achieving that. That's incredible. What a story is well, I feel like so many people are such in a rush to to get like, you know, the doctorate or get whatever. Like that's amazing. What what did uh, yeah. she do her doctorate in, can I ask?
1: Uh yeah. So she originally was a nurse, like a, a newborn a neonatal intensive care unit nurse. Um but then actually over the decades working in that setting she got very interested in spiritual care because, unfortunately, she saw lots of um, newborns who, you know, didn't do who were born early and had all these, you know, hard complications. And so she actually became very interested in like chaplaincy and spiritual care. So she actually got her masters and doctorate in like divinity, and she became actually a joint nurse chaplain at the hospital. And then now actually has done more of the spiritual
0: care stuff. That's what she's doing now. That's really cool. Um... My my dad is a vicar, so I feel like we've got the, like, spiritual parent link there. That's funny. Um, but, yeah, that's really cool. That's really interesting. She sounds amazing. Um, yeah. Okay. Number two. Uh, name a phase of your life that you didn't like at the time, but looking back, you know that positives came from it.
1: Um, yeah. So uh, I think that's somewhat related to the previous point because my mother didn't have a lot of opportunities, especially with educational opportunities when she was growing up, I think when she moved to America, part of her like goal was to make sure that I had all these educational opportunities that she never had. And so she ended up sending me to this very competitive college preparatory kind of private school um, for both that primary and secondary school. Um, but it was somewhat far away from our home. And I think that attending that school, I started when I was four, um, actually felt, made me feel quite like an outsider. You know, we were like an hour away from the where the school was. So geographically, I was kind of distant from the other classmates. Um, you know, I definitely was like out of the same class. Like there were definitely lots of wealthier families there. Um, and I was actually the only Asian student or Asian boy in, in my class. So I definitely felt like in many ways like an outsider, um, but I really received an outstanding education and like basically at the age of four, Lauren, that I had to work extremely hard because otherwise I would not make the cut. And so I think that while it was not pleasant as an elementary or primary school child to be basically put in this like competitive pressure cooker environment, I think in the long run it helped me because um, you basically yeah, gave me like great uh, educational opportunities and um, and a really solid um background, even though it was you
0: know, kind of stressful at the time. Amazing. Thank you. And that, that's always my favorite question because I, I I always like to think that someone listening might be going through something similar. So if there's someone younger who's going, who's in a school that they're struggling with and finding it difficult, I like the idea of them hearing someone say, actually, I went through that as well. And, and I'm I really, I'm glad that it happens now. So, yeah.
1: And actually, as an aside, I will say that I grew up in
0: Los Angeles right.
1: where like actually a lot of my, classmates were like the children of celebrity actors and and stuff and so they're actually interesting enough were quite a few even though it wasn't my interest or focus at the time like I had a lot of classmates unfortunately who suffered from eating disorders who had parents who like I mean people would give their children boob jobs for like a graduation present like it was just a very um, appearance-based environment um and so I think that maybe that even though that wasn't I didn't know at the time that I was going to do eating disorder care unfortunately many classmates were affected and it was also one of these environments where i think it literally was next door to hollywood so we had a lot of
0: movie star type mm. families yeah i mean giving people a boob job so they like yeah, you know, yeah that doesn't sound like a a great environment but it also sounds like the the exact stereotype of la I feel like if i if I picture l a <laughs> like schools it's like at least the kind of england stereotype of of that is that i think so um yeah it does surprise me but also kind of doesn't from stereotypical standpoint but um okay, the final one the final the final three uh, name a phrase or word that changed your life.
1: So there's a phrase or a word of solidarity, which was a concept that I first read from Dr. Paul Farmer. Um, He um, unfortunately passed away this past year, but he was a very inspiring um, physician and medical anthropologist who did really amazing global health work, particularly in Haiti and Africa. And um, he would use this term solidarity to say that he basically treated all of his patients, no matter how poor, no matter how distance with the same compassion as though they were his family Um, and so there's actually a best-selling book a biography about him called Mountains Beyond Mountains and it's titled that because I'm talking about catchy titles because he literally in Haiti would like hike be like go on these really long paths like Mountains Beyond Mountains to get to patients who had never gotten medical care and he would bring the care to them Um, and there are all these like epic stories of him Saying like, just because they're poor doesn't mean that they shouldn't be able to access, you know, really important and expensive treatment. And so he would actually, he worked at Harvard and he would actually fly people from Haiti to Harvard to get, you know, the best care that they could. And everybody sort of said, this is not sustainable. This is not cost effective, whatever. And he said, I don't care. Like I'm going to treat this person like they were my brother or sister and they're, you know, it's not fair that they can't get access to this treatment because they're poor. And so as a undergraduate, he was somebody who's Readings and writings, and I actually got to meet him. Really inspired me to, and was primarily the reason why I actually went into medicine, um, because I wanted to be able to provide care like he did for patients. Um, and I am often reminded of him when there are lots of barriers to care for some of our eating disorder patients, like insurance companies not wanting to cover it, or, or unfortunately there are in very you know different contexts, but similarly challenging barriers for getting some of our patients care and I sometimes try to um, Remind myself and invoke this solidarity concept her.
0: I mean he sounds incredible and what yeah, that's a fantastic way to wrap it up and also um, shows how much you're um, inspired by your mom to not mention him <laughs> and mention your mom instead as the person who inspires you so yeah amazing um, well Jason we're at the end of the podcast. I hope you enjoyed it. Yeah,
1: thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun and you know, especially all of it was enjoyable, but I love the devil's advocate in the final three. That really made me have to think a little bit.
0: Fantastic, fantastic. Um, yeah, thank you for having me. Like I said, um, one of the original people I wanted to get on the podcast when I first started it two years ago, I think it was, something like that. Um, so, yeah, amazing to, to have you on. Um, and for, everyone at home as always thank you so so much for listening to the podcast all the way through and i hope to see you at the next one bye thank you so much for listening to that episode here at my minds we're trying to raise awareness for all the things that we speak about in this podcast so please if you can give it a share each and every one of you has the potential to help us with that Also, if you want to check out MyMinds.com, please do. You can see all our social media things on there, and we'd love to have you contributing more as a part of our community. Thank you.